welcome to Origins, a podcast about the money behind the money. This podcast is created by Notation, a pre-seed venture capital firm based in Brooklyn, New York. We invest in amazing technical teams and projects in New York City on day zero. You can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital. Season three of Origins is sponsored by eShares and Silicon Valley Bank, two products we love to use. We use eShares at Notation and recommend it to all the startups we work with. But something you might not know is that eShares has a product for LPs too. eShares for LPs allows you to easily sign, send, and store K1s, securely manage capital calls, review your investment KPIs, and more. To learn more about eShares for LPs, go to bit.ly.com slash product. Silicon Valley Bank is the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors, with a dedicated practice for emerging managers. They've been friends and partners to Notation since the beginning. To learn more about SVB services, visit svb.com. We have a very special guest today. I'm Nick, partner at Notation. I'm Hi. here with my... Uh, my other partner in crime, Alex. Hello. And we are here with partner at Union Square Ventures, music head, fish fan, a mentor and, and friend of ours, uh, Mr. Andy Weissman. Hello. Hi, Andy. Hello. Uh, so I met Andy when he rejected my company as an investment in maybe 2007. Got to know him better when we followed each other on Twitter. Did he ghost you, or was it a nice? Was it a nice? No, he just there? actually just started replying to one of my tweets on Twitter about music. Uh, and we all followed each. We all followed each yeah. other in those days. It was the good old days. Yeah. So so we bonded over music, as have many people with Andy. And uh, he later hired me at BetaWorks, where we worked together for a few years on a number of things, including Chartbeat, Bitly, Techno Viking, Fanfic, an early AI dedicated to generating Scott Con puns, a bunch of other important stuff. Uh, so I couldn't get his firm to invest in my business, but he hired me to be the chief architect at his company, Betaworks. So go figure. Everyone has days off, I guess. But one, one thing I wanted to <laughs> mention. Uh, so I found something crazy while I was researching this, which was a crazy misconnection, the sort of thing that probably happens more often than we realize, but fades into the ether because probably most of us don't have you know, true personal historical search. I'm a bit obsessive, so I have a fairly comprehensive personal archive. And uh, I was searching for early mentions of A. Weissman, expecting that Twitter conversations from 2007, but it showed me something a little bit earlier than that, which was, let's see, from 2005, where I was, I was working on a site here in New York, and I found a random comment from an A. Weissman who liked what we were building and he said, I invest in early stage businesses at Rockridge Ventures. Where are you wow. located? Should we speak? Oh wow. My God. That's Isn't crazy. That crazy. That's incredible. <laughs> it was just like, wow. I just happened to have this. Yeah. So, found so it. It's like a total disconnection. Oh, the internet history. So did you reply? I didn't even, I mean, no. And what were you, what was no. it? What, what, wait, wait, no. what, were, what was it you were, this what random. was it? By the way, you know, here's the, it's one of the, actually, that, you know, it's also incredible is that, um, Part of the beauty of the internet is, you know, you can just, you can register a domain 
and it gives you an identity. That was like Rock Ridge Ventures. Right. So at some point, I decided that that was a that there was a thing called Rock Ridge Ventures that existed only on GoDaddy. Sounds, and, <laughs> and re- sounds like a substantial institution. Yeah, yeah. And it's just a it's just it's just an email address. So wow. you didn't reply. Well, it was. I think I had forwarded these on to the yeah. the founder. And who was the founder? This guy named uh, Bruce Spector. He had, no. he had built an early online calendar in the 90s yeah. that Yahoo bought. It became Yahoo Calendar. This was his next thing. That's fantastic. Yada. That's great. Zero recollection. Yeah. <laughs> Zero. <laughs> Nothing. I mean, it was 12 Nothing. years ago. Yeah, that's amazing. So, yeah, so, you know, instead of doing too much of a deep background dive, because there's a lot to dive into, including, you know, I wish we had time to talk about your uh, New York public access show, Underground Railroad. Um, but would love to hear a little bit more about the AOL time, which seems like a, a seminal influence, but how that led to co-founding Betaworks and, and more importantly, your views on social consumer web and, and network effect businesses like AIM. Great. Well, thank you for that introduction. <laughs> That's wonderful. Um, when did you start at Betaworks, by the way? It had been 2007, yeah. right at the beginning. Yeah. So the... Um, I appreciate that you guys would go into the go into the past and talk a little bit uh, about that because, in some ways, I think there was a direct line between a, between AOL and BetaWorks, and the and the line was this: that I think one of the strategic errors that AOL made was, you know, if you go back to ninety six and ninety seven, the internet, what what were these companies? What were these businesses? We didn't really know what metaphors to use to describe them and so that in and what happens historically when you when you don't know how to describe them you you reply you rely on other metaphors so that's why web we call them web pages for a while we print was were, like a, a predominant metaphor. absolutely and so and i actually think that the 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 craft of web development in a way was a little bit retarded by 10 years of thinking of them as pages versus something else. And so we applied the metaphor of a magazine page. Anyway, so the metaphor at AOL was a media company because we couldn't figure out what else what else was it. And so that's why it was organized by channels and stuff. And I did business development there, which is a which is a fairly well-defined role. But uh but whatever whatever we were adding to the platform, whether it was the first instance of online banking or streaming audio, people were just chatting. Mm. And then we'd add another functionality, and they were instant messaging. You know, like no matter what we did, what people mm. were doing was actually kind of connecting with others in these proto-social applications. We didn't even have no one had the words to describe them as such, but it was just person to person. And then when John and I reconnected around about BetaWorks and whenever it was 2005, 2006, and we had a little bit of a MySpace and a little bit of a friend, so you could start to see applications that were primarily or exclusively about connections between people, it felt, uh, it reminded us of some things that we saw, but also felt like that's kind of what the internet was about, or some part of the internet was about that. And so that's what, so we were like, let's start a company that does that. And then the question was, all right, well, what does that mean? And we're like, well, we'll build some stuff and we'll invest in stuff. But that was like, that was the direct line from it. Do you think, do you think people discounted the value of aim because the content seemed unimportant yeah we misunderstood it completely we misunderstood that there was you know there's content and there's context hmm. and so you and so in the in a world of uh, of scarcity of of distribution the content has you perceive the content to have a lot more value than the context 
in a world where that is changed, which is the internet world, the context actually has a lot of more importance. And the context is is two people, you know, two people connecting or a friend request or a tweet or whatever. Those are context applications. So I think we didn't, I think we didn't, I think we didn't understand. And maybe it was impossible to understand what was happening. Because if you think about it, we had to go through a bunch of revs till people understood it. Maybe it was not until Facebook or whatever. But I think that's why. I think there was that, but I'm not sure we could have really right. perceived what was happening. So you co-founded Betaworks. You were at Betaworks for, say, five or six years. You joined USV five years ago now? Is that about right? Yeah, I think so. About five years ago. So I want to talk a little bit about maybe like your first couple years here. And, you know, I think you're the most recent partner to join Union Square Ventures, even though it was five years ago. Correct. And I hope, um, I hope soon not to be the most okay. recent. Okay. Fair. Um, they're hiring, apparently. Um, want to make an announcement on the show? No. Okay. Um, <laughs> no breaking so, news here. You know, I, I just want to talk a little bit about what it was like to join such a well-known, almost, even though it had only been around for 10 years, like already an iconic firm here in New York. And as the newest partner and, and, and how you, in the early days, kind of thought about that and carved out your own space. I mean, in a, in a way, it wasn't... The there was the transition was not difficult for for a couple reasons. One is, you know, we'd been continually at we've been continually pitching, right? USV. So right. So I had I and we had seen the process from the perspective of a company. We couldn't get them to agree to invest, but right. but through that process, we we had worked in really closely. I mean, there was there was the Twitter stuff and Tumblr and. Kickstarter and whatever, and so there was a real commonality of, of personal relationships that I think made that you know it made a transition less of a less of a transition and something more uh, a little easier. I I will say, but I remember coming in here and I was like, well, okay, well, how does it you know how does it work? You know, what do I right. what do I do? And I remember this actually really well. My first day, it happened to be a Monday, and like most VC firms, we have the cliched Monday meeting. But Monday meeting is in intensely important to our process. But it was a Monday meeting, and I kind of walked in and I sat down, and no one said anything. Like just like it was just another person mm. at the table, right? Right, and right. I was like, like no. they weren't even like, like hey, hey Andy, how's it was great first day. Right. You know, Andy's <laughs> here, just kind of like sat there, you know, and right. then and it just and so, you know, it it yeah. I, it took me a little while to realize that the trick was to surrender to the flow because mm. that's how everyone else treated mm. it as well. Mm. And by that, I mean that the, the part of the process, you know, USV, when it started, its website was a blog, which was really unique in 2004, 2005, like as a, as an institution, as a financial institution, yeah. your website being a blog. And if you go back and look at some of the initial early stuff that Fred or Brad wrote, it was about, we want to have a conversation with the market. And it was very much about, the methodology around conversations with the market as a way to come to investment decisions and decide what to invest. And so stepping into that flow, you're just stepping into kind of a conversation that's been going on with the world. Mm. And it's been going on for like 12 years. So, so the transition is, is really different because there is no real transition. You just kind of like slot in mm -hmm. and then you get caught up, you know, in that flow. That's how, that's how it works here. I don't probably works differently in different places. So I don't think it was, it wasn't, that was unusual, but it wasn't hard. Right. Was there anything surprising? Well, that fact alone was right. surprising, right. right? But right. like I was going to come and start, and no one's going to say anything. Right. Welcome. Right. You know? And you just sat down and started and chatting. And you're there, and like you're talking about like a chatting. deal or a company, right. you know? Right. There, right. That, that, was, that, was, that was the part that was surprising. Right. So we could 
talk for days about all the different USV themes and the investments you've made over the past few years, but I, I really want to focus the conversation around kind of the firm and firm building. And, and so a year ago or so, USV announced that you and, and Albert would be, were, were becoming managing partners of the firm. And Fred and Brad, who were the two founders, were, I guess, becoming just regular general partners of the firm. And so I'd love to understand, you know, exactly what that means and how you guys think about that, uh, that change. So there are two, two things. One is, you know, really, I think about who got the better deal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> one, one, one group of people just becomes investing partners and the mm-hmm. other actually have to manage something, right. you know? Right. So that's one way to think right. about it. And what does managing the firm mean? Well, to you guys? I think it, it means a couple things. And I think we had to figure that out too. We have, you know, 15 people now, which is pretty big for you. Mm-hmm. It's probably about around as big as we'll ever get, but there's managing a group of people that, mm-hmm. that are organized in a couple different, you know, we have 70 companies, 68, 72 companies, five or six funds. So you have people that work on, on the financial administration of the firm. You have people that are investment analysts. You have our network group. We have someone that does some work in policy and things like that. So you have like you have groups that are that are organized around specific functions that they have to do and 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 part of it is managing them that's one aspect the other part is man, primary primarily managing the relationships with the LP is not exclusively right. but being more in the forefront of that and then related to that is setting the direction going forward of the fund will it be the same will it be different any of those what's the composition of the people those kind of things and then articulating that to the world and being more of the primary people who are who are representing that to the world. Do so the economic do the economics change? Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, uh, and and they don't have to per right, se. Right. And they do in some subtle ways and some more explicit ways, but yes. Um, because it was a it was a, it was a you know and Fred and and Brad to another extent have written about it, it was it was a transfer. Right, you know, a transfer of not control per se, but a, but emotional core yep. of the fund and going forward. And the thing, the thing that we we and primarily they, uh, Fred and Brad and and John had to decide that they wanted it c- to continue. We had to it. We were a right. part of that as well. Right. But that was decision number one. What is it that's here? And then if you have, because it's just you could just you know you, d- you register a domain name, you know, right, right, and, and then should it. Do we all want it to continue? And then if it's going to continue, what's the form it's going to continue in? And the form that it's in the process of taking is the founders, you know, aren't administering. They're just investing and they may invest less over time. And, and Albert and I will be doing more of that. Um, right. Because for a while, I think Fred and Brad talked relatively openly that when they were done, you know, the firm would they always be done. That. Yeah. Right. They always so that's that. a big change. It was a big change in their thinking. Um, yeah, I think Brad Feld said the same thing, right? Yes. Like he doesn't right. care about succession. When yeah. right. he's done, it's yep. done. He doesn't care. That's about That's what they said, continue. and they always and they and there are lots of things they said that are exactly the same. Small funds. That's what they've always said. We we'll always right. have small funds, mm-hmm. one office, you know. Mm-hmm. And there's right. a small team, exactly. And so, but the team may have been like the two of them, and maybe an analyst. That was like the core beginning beginnings of USV, and then that slowly changed over time, which led to the conversation around, well, maybe, you know, maybe this could continue, but if it's going to continue, who's going to run it and how, and how are they going to run it? So, so most firms don't survive generational change. I don't know if that's fair to say, but a lot don't. Yeah. Um, and, uh, obviously, you know, 
with with those guys stepping back, it's a big change. How, how do you what what are the risks as you see them, and how do you think about addressing those risks in the future? Or maybe there aren't. No, I mean the risk. Any change has risks, right? No matter what right. it is. And then you have a then you have a weird entity which is. And you guys know this because you run a fund. What is a fund? You know, what is what does it mean for it to continue, right? Because it's a loose collection mm-hmm. of people, maybe employees, some LPs, and a document, and then you you give out the money and get some back. I think that um, I think the risks are, you know, Fred and Brad didn't call it Fred and Brad Ventures or Wilson Burnham Ventures. They gave it a name that was specific to a location, which was part of the original idea right. and therefore that therefore my point is that thing the that name and whatever people think it represents the name could continue on in a way that like Wilson Burnham Ventures probably could right and so the risks are what it what's associated with that name that people who you want to do business with entrepreneurs primarily and LPs what do they think of that name and are those still things do you believe in all those things or do you want to perpetuate all those things. So, so at so some level, the generation transfer is a bunch of people that have to kind of agree on that, the rough outlines of that, if not the specifics. In other words, if we USV is a is a thesis driven firm, if Albert and I were not interested in in being part of right. a thesis driven firm, right? If we decided sense. we're like, let's just do well, let's be geographical focused, or mm-hmm. let's try and compete more with first round and be the first ones in or precede with notation, mm-hmm. then that's a big change. Mm-hmm. So we'd had to kind of come to that. Agreement. Do you like the job? Do I? Which job are we talking about? The new job. Yes, I do like you the do. new job. You know why I like it is that I haven't done it before, so I'm learning right. new things. Right. Well, I've only done it for a year. What, it's all what, new. What's the What's the biggest learning? The biggest learning is that uh, is like what I said. There are you don't until you are in a position where you are or you are perceived to be defining the direction of something for me at least was the first time that I realized what people thought it was. Mm. Uh, I was kind of like naive to it. I didn't have to deal with it before. And then reacting to that, thinking about that and reacting to that has been, uh, has been interesting. So, you know, we, we, we spent a lot of time on the podcast talking to folks about uh, how to raise capital for venture firms, how to raise capital in many cases for first time funds specifically as it relates to your relationship with the LPs of Union Square Ventures as the managing partners of Union Square Ventures. How do you think about those relationships within the context of the history of Union Square Ventures, where there's a obviously a very strong existing LP capital base? Do you think about changing that over time or uh, and how do you think about messaging that? I'm curious to because that obviously is a big change for the LPs too. Yeah, it's not. I think there are. I think there are some a couple characteristics of USV that 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 enable us to think about this in a in a little bit of a different flavor. One is I think that as of the, the way some of the core values of the firm have been really really open transparency with the L- LPs ahead of time in making decisions that they that we think they might be interested in. Right. Um, and at least that they tell us that we operate in more of that mode. So so I would say there's there can be a level of intimacy around the business with the LPs that may not exist in other places. So because of that, the changes that happen 
uh, they appear to happen gradually and they aren't and they aren't a surprise and they aren't a shock right. to anyone. Right. So in thinking about changing who is going to manage the firm, we probably were talking to our LPs about it well before it happened. Right. And thinking about investing in blockchain it was years, you know. Right. And by the way, to get their feedback and things like that. So the so the so the transition ends up being not that big on either side. Um it's big in in kind of me, you know, trying to change the primary person point of contact. Mm -hmm. So Albert had a, and I had to spend more time doing that where we didn't where we didn't have some of the deep relationships with some of the people. But USV is like a really privileged place for you know we're very loyal to the LPs and have been mm -hmm. and and so there's no turnover really. Mm -hmm. For the most part it's kind of the same group of people mm -hmm. each time around. But you didn't raise money from them the first right. time around yep. for for Union Square Ventures. Right. Yeah. So in theory maybe your loyalty them is to them is slightly different than maybe Fred and Brad who 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 have been with them since the beginning. Um are there differences of opinion there or there's total alignment yeah, or there's in, like in, th in so in theory there would be differences i think in, in practice it's not because of the because of the ongoing relationship with these people even though we didn't raise it from them in the first place the relationship mm -hmm. has been pretty i think it's pretty tight for all of us and so mm -hmm. so there so the it, in practice it just kind of continues on i would say like every new fund there's maybe one or two new lps we find room for them and there right. happens to be room for right. them circumstantial right. and that's usually and in every instance it's people that we've known for a while anyway that feel like they'd be a good addition right. to right. the club so USV is in, but there's no way. Like, it's not like it's part of the transition. There was never a point where Albert and I were like, "Yes, now we can like swap out the <laughs> right, LPs. They're right, great. They're right, all awesome. Right, and they're so, long term, and we right. engage them in the conversation of being long term. And so it feels like it's a really good business relationship. Right. Um, so uh, it's not. It's less transactional. Yeah. And yeah, more. Yeah. More. What? Here's the way we think about the world. Do you want to keep participating in the business? Being businesses being built around that. And generally, the answer is yes. Yeah. USV is, a, is, is obviously in a very privileged position of having more capital demand from LPs than there is room in each fund. And you guys have been historically um, you know, very disciplined around fund size, which I think is part of what makes USV work. Um, I imagine there's situations where there's some you know, dream capital partner right, that comes along that's uh, either... Well, one, I'd be curious to know, like, what is the dream capital partner, if there is one? And uh, and and when they do come along, how do you kind of manage that relationship? You know, if, if the answer is no, or maybe the answer is maybe in the future, like, and how much time do you spend with those folks when even there's maybe a low likelihood that the, that they might be partners? I, I mean, I, I think, I don't think there's a dream capital partner. Okay. I don't know how you would characterize that, you know? And if, and I would actually say that probably if there was one, I would, each firm maybe has a different characteristics of capital partner they want and then could define who the, who the mm -hmm. dream partner right, is, right? right? The capital, so if you think about the way that we operate is uh, uh, we're engaged around ideas and conversation around ideas and trying to find consensus and collaboration around the ideas. Good capital partners are ones that are happy to have that conversation right. with us and want to add to that conversation or happy listening to us. And so, and we kind of have, we kind of have those. And when we add a new one, it's usually someone that for whatever reason, we're having that conversation with them. I remember right. I remember we added, there was maybe one new LP with the first fund I was here 
and and there was and I think at the time we went into the meeting with her and was like we just don't have room, but well we'll talk to you, but we don't have room for new LPs. But you're kind of a friend, and there's was some other connection that we had with her, and we sat in a room, and she's just as brilliant, mm. and we just talked about ideas, right, right, and we left the room, and we we're like we have to find a wow. way, right. To, to right. if we can get her into the fund, right. and it's amazing, you know. Right. So that's like, so for us, it's that because if someone if someone isn't interested in that conversation, it's probably not going to be a great relationship mm-hmm. for us because that's the way we operate. So things like, so when you think about that, things like fund size are really meaningful to the core of what we do. Whether it stays the same, goes up or goes down, that fund size and the small fund size is is one of the core philosophies. So you'd have to kind of agree with that, right? You want to participate because if not, you'd be like, you know, maybe you want to put more money in, and we're not going to. We're never going to take more money, right? So you'd have right. to believe in that as an as an attribute, right? Right. So yeah, I mean, switching gears a little bit to more of some of the USV investment process stuff. Um, you know, USV has strong conviction around the role of process and in investment decisions. Um, you know, at the same time, with every investment. You have to make at least one big leap of faith, if not quite a few, right? Which is another way of saying that you guess, right, in those leaps of faith. But what do you think is the right interplay there? I mean, do you think that, is it that process can minimize the leaps of faith you have to make? Or I'm, I'm just curious about a little more insight into the role, and into what is the right role of process? Because sometimes you you feel like you see people building a ton of process to the point where you know, you almost think, oh, well, this is going to minimize, you think you imagine in their head, this is going to minimize risk or what do you think is going to make the investment decision for you? I mean, you can't reduce it that far, right? I mean, otherwise it's a flow chart, a a computer could do it. Right. So, so yeah, I'm just curious. I mean, what? Yeah. So put a pin in whether a computer can do it or not. Okay. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Because that's Well, a computer can make decisions, sure. Absolutely. Right? We can throw a ton of data at it. And so can you find areas where, that are investment areas into private companies where where that could work? Put put that aside. I think it's a really interesting question. But I think that, so here's the way every, every investment is, the fact that you're doing it is a leap of faith, right? These are small companies are operating in competitive and uncertain markets. There may be founders that have never done this before. They, the product may not work. Users may not like the product. You may not be able to find a way to make money from the product. Like those are, you know, those every company that you look at or we look at has some subset of those questions. Yes. So you you owe every time you're doing leap of faith. The reason that I believe so much in process is I think because every investment decision is some so some form of leap of faith. And and if you don't have the process, you may go mad in making right. those. You may just right. go crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Because you're just dealing yeah. with uncertainty. Process doesn't determine the outcome at all a computer algorithm does process just determines the guide rails you know or determines the box in which you can make you can throw whatever decision making thinking you have into it so location is part of a process fund size is part of a process thesis you know or stage these all those are part of the process they don't you still have to make the once once something gets into that box mm. a process you're still making a leap of faith right and the idea is we get compensated for that leap of faith because we we invested or very early pr- prices are low, right? And the companies create a lot of value. So I mean, are, what are the ways that your process could maybe lead you to make an investment that otherwise you might not? Because that seems like a potentially interesting use of process, where instead of kind of confirming your biases or confirming your own 
uh, you know, risk aversion or other things like that, how, how could process potentially help uh, you be interested in something or, or capture your attention in a way that you might otherwise say, this is, not, this is not viable? This is an awesome question. So here's what I think. It, this, is why, this is why diversity of viewpoints matters so much regardless of what the process you have because you can, you, the process can become rote if you're all thinking the same way or if it's a group of people that have the same background that have the same set of experiences mm. so that the core then is to have a that diversity of experiences of viewpoints of backgrounds so that it doesn't become rote so it can lead you to things that you might otherwise say. a good process should never exclude something just because you wouldn't have thought of it it right. should lead you to that nirvana state right so how do you get there it's the thinking that goes in when you're inside the box of process and having someone that may think differently than you should lead that, to that. Right. That's what I think. How, I, um, h- how often do you make dramatic changes in the process at Unisquare Venture? To, not, or has it been pretty, it's been pretty consistent? Been pretty consistent. Yeah. Because they're not, so what, so what are the aspects of the process? Fun size, mm-hmm. stage focus, one office, mm-hmm. The way we make decisions, there's no voting. So the way, you know, the, that more consensus or collaborative approach. And then thesis. So if you look at the thesis and we publish it every couple of years, it is both specific and also fairly generic. Right. It says a lot about what we don't do because it doesn't fit in and then leaves a lot of things open. Large networks of engaged users was version 1.0 of the thesis. That's pretty freaking broad. Yeah. And so... Version two was vertical specific networks, domain specific networks that have network effects in more subtle areas or decentralized technologies, I'm simplifying, or enabling technologies. So we kind of parse that a little more. Those are pretty broad. Right. So it's kind of easy to find some stuff that doesn't fit in there. Maybe ad tech doesn't fit in there as much, though it could in some cases, but it's meant to be pretty broad. I think the good ones are pretty broad. Yeah. Have you ever strayed from process and found that it worked well, didn't work well? I think there I think there are times when 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 we strayed a little bit and and we found out when we busted the pro let's just talk about times where, where we busted the process, tried to win a deal, did not win the deal, and then in hindsight we're really happy we didn't th- win the deal and therefore so like rushing an investment decision, you know, having to right. make, you know, things like that. We're, we're as a, as a small fund, there's a component of math that goes in to what we do. And so uh, having an owner, we have no ownership targets, but we're trying to return three to four X of the fund. And so when you start to bust, and we can't, we don't have as much flexibility because as a $175 million fund, it's hard to write $10 million as an as initial check in an early stage company. So the times that we've busted it and we were like pushed the boundaries of it, there are a couple of times we didn't win those deals. And then afterwards we're like, whew. Right. And, and I think it's not because they were good or bad. A lot of these things have uncertainty. There's a lot of failure, but we didn't follow the process. What, what I'm you, a strict adherent. I'm a strict adherent to the process, yeah. as you can tell. Yeah, you know, because I, I think, and, I, and it's just because I go crazy without it. Yeah. Right. I wouldn't. You know, there's so much interesting things happening in the world, and as an investor, where how would right. you decide you what to do? Yeah. yeah, I mean, how do you maintain your sense of optimism in the face of you know life, the news, the you know infinite creativity of the universe, and the ways that everything can get fucked up? Like two ways. I listen to a lot of fish. 
<laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I yeah. talk to and I talk to people like you guys. <laughs> That's I mean, is it hard sometimes to like I don't know to find the positive in in every new pitch that you see? So you know what's interesting is VCs. We can't really bitch about being VCs for sure because it's kind of a privileged role, right? And it's not so fair because it's not anywhere near as hard as an entrepreneur that's sweating a payroll or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But at the same time, we just look at a lot of pitches, and so it's hard. So there are times, right? You just where get desensitized. Become, yeah, you just become desensitized. You become desensitized to the excitement of the of the fact that there are people who are actually trying to have control over their professional lives. Mm-hmm. So, what are the ways that you do it? I find that I just kind of like focus on the portfolio, mm. the existing investments, more than right. the more than new investments, mm. and find kind of positive aspects in watching someone. You know, there's 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 a company that we did. We don't do a lot of seed investing. We did the seed investment because because we had a, a bunch of us had a deep relationship with the with the founder, and and I'm watching him mature into a into a into a really good business person. Mm. And I'm not sure at the beginning of the journey he would have described himself as that. And watching it, it's just you're just so happy for him. It's incredible right. to see him gain confidence and exploring new skills that he had. So that's what I do. I like go internal. The other thing that I do is, have you ever read the book, The New New Thing by mm-hmm. Michael Lewis? Mm-hmm. So it's great. It's like written that's in like- one of his newer ones or No, old? older. Old it's like 97, okay. 90 years, right? About Jim Clark, founder oh, of Silicon right. Graphics and then Ooh, Netscape okay. and then Excited was doing this, this thing one. called Healthion. Yeah. And it's really, it's a wild book because it's a snapshot from a time that feels a little- you know, anachronistic in a way. It was only 10 or 20 years ago. But the point is that the the thing that was, the thing that I think Lewis was trying to capture was Jim Clark wasn't looking for the new thing. Right? It was the new, new thing. Mm. It was the thing ahead of that. Mm. And he was trying to capture this energy that someone who views themselves as a creator or an entrepreneur has. Like what's new isn't even enough. It's what's ahead of that. Right. And that's kind of like, you get like a little bit of chills thinking about that. We get to like, you know, every now and then you have a meeting with someone and they're like way out ahead. By the way, it could be something you don't participate in because you think you can't take that leap of faith. But that's the excitement. That's the exciting part of it. Maybe that's a decent time to talk about some blockchain and crypto stuff. And then I'm also going to bug you about maybe what is, if that's the new thing, maybe what is the, the new, new, new thing. thing. Yep. Um, so, so first question is, you know, We've talked a lot about LPs. Yeah, that's what the podcast is typically about. I'd I'd love to hear some of your thoughts on maybe the blockchain thesis more broadly at at USV, but also specifically, I know you've you've publicly announced that you're an investor in a few blockchain funds, and so uh, what's particularly interesting about that to me and for maybe for this podcast is that in a way that's USV becoming an LP yes. yourself in some other manager's funds. Yes. And so I'd love to hear more about that and the decision process behind it. So there's two um there's two parts to it. One is um one is why did we do it? I think, right? I think you're asking two things. Why why would we do that? And the other thing is how did we how did we describe this to our LPs? Sure. Right. Sure. Being, and so I think there are so let's talk about that part first. I think if you if you go back because we publish everything. So the the USV investment and the investment memos for our investments are blog posts. Right. There's no other document. So so we've been talking about and if you go back to the last time we wrote about the thesis called USV thesis 2.0 which is 2 or 3 years ago there's a big section in there in the blockchain and that came after a couple of years of a couple of years of work as yep. well. So 
we'd been talking to them. What does work mean? Meeting people, talking, yeah. thinking it through, whiteboarding. It's external yeah. and internal. Yeah. And it mean and it means like why is this uh, why is this important? What's happening that's important? You know, historically, how does it? What is it? How is it meaningful to our thesis? And so, and there were, and there are. I think there are fairly obvious components of the blockchain that are very relevant to the USV thesis, going back to the beginning, network effects and all yeah. that. Yeah. So, but, but these were new. These it wasn't that it was a new technology. There were new ways of thinking about product, new ways of thinking about protocols. So we had a lot of conversations with LP like about that. You know, mm -hmm. like A, this is an area we're going to spend a lot of time on. B, this has maybe a unique set of risks. And C, <coughs> and C, we don't know, actually know how to invest in it. Right. Yet we don't know if that's going to look like minority equity stake in companies or something else. Right. So imagine having that conversation three years ago, and then you make a couple. Of investments in things that looked like companies as Media Chain and Ob1 and IPFS or maybe Coinbase, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. there are a bunch, and and we and we were happy with those investments, not necessarily with the success of them, though that was the case, but but how this ecosystem was evolving, mm -hmm. and we knew, and at that time you felt like that was one of the new new things, absolutely, yeah, way now it's just yeah. the new thing, <laughs> okay, but it definitely was the new new thing, yeah. Yeah. but it represented the new new thing on in two aspects. One was from a product user perspective, and also what's the role of an investor right. in these things. So last year or so, when we had our annual LP meeting, we had a continuing dialogue about this where uh, we gave them a review of where we are. And there were a couple questions we posed, which is, we're not sure the right way to invest in these yet. Mm -hmm. We don't know. We don't, like, should we be buying tokens? Mm -hmm. you know, or, or are these companies we're, you know, that where investments look like the typical governance controls, we don't know, so we're going to experiment. And and in doing that, we said we think it's going to be a combination of all these things. Some of these things are going to look like companies, maybe some direct token investing, and then probably some other vehicles. Mm -hmm. So we had told them that because I think that would have been a big surprise otherwise. If then, you had invested in a, a crypto fund, for example, without having that context of like yeah. We I mean, might do some other stuff. Yeah, I just right. think, and by the way, we wanted their feedback. What are the things we should be thinking about mm -hmm. in doing that? Mm -hmm. We hadn't done it yet, right? And then a couple of these came up where it felt like part of a good, a good diversified portfolio strategy would involve in these external vehicles. So then we did it. In those cases, though, we try and make it as friendly to our LPs as possible because the issues of double fee and double carry may not be. So we try and figure out a structure in investing in these funds. So sometimes it means investing in the GP and the LP. Okay. Sometimes it may mean just the LP or, or some other type of vehicle. But a way so, to be, so just to just to I knew you were going to get away in with the, that. In the I knew GP you were and gonna, the LP. I knew you were not going to let me throw <laughs> what, that by. What uh, what what could you ex maybe explain? Well, that if you other. think about if you think about as you're an LP, you pay, you're paying two things to the managers. You're paying okay. a management fee and okay. you're paying a carried interest. Okay. Our LPs are paying us that. Yep. And then we are then paying some other fund that. Right. If we own part of the G three, it's a bit of a GP. In another fund, it's a bit of a pass-through. Okay. You think about it that way. Yep. They cancel each other out. Okay. The fees that we're paying in an LP, we You're earn earning as back a GP. In GP. Now, we can't always do that. Yep. It's not always appropriate to do that. There are circumstances where we are where it feels like that's very friendly. Yep. Do you think at the end of this process, you'll, you'll, you'll say, hmm, you know, the traditional company investments and the token investments were good and the crypto funds were bad or some other combination or or... I hope not. I don't know. Or you think they all will accrue maybe I, it, value in, in interest in No, I ways. think it's diversified. So if you think right, about like three right. buckets, there are 
their, their investments in companies mm-hmm. that are part of a blockchain ecosystem. Coinbase is a good example of one, right? Then there's a set of funds, and those funds each have a different strategy for how they're participating in the market. And then the third bucket is, is, um, is buying tokens directly on the open market or through an ICO or a SAFT or whatever they're mm-hmm. calling it. And it feels like a diversified strategy in an area with as much potential growth but also uncertainty. That, that's one representation right. of a diversified strategy. Right. That's where you think about it. It's not even like some of them may work, they may not, but it feels really, you know, again, diversified, so which like, is good. There's a, almost like a mini portfolio construction yeah. strategy specifically yes. specific to blockchain within the broader yes. USV portfolio yes, construction exactly. strategy. Yes, exactly. Okay. Or within, and it's primarily in our last fund too, so it's within a fund. By the way, there, right. are, other, there are other restrictions, you know, the venture capital exemption of the, yep. you know, the, so there are, there's a regulatory environment that's different yep. that, you, that you can bump up against. What's the new news thing? That you guys are looking at. I, That's what I really want to know. You don't know. It's a journey. <laughs> you figure it out. I guess. I, I guess. I guess. Oh. I mean, USV historically has written pretty publicly about all the new new things that they're looking at, right? I mean, you guys were writing about blockchain three years ago. Yeah, anybody could yeah. have read. Anybody well, could have done. I do think. I do think. I do think there's still a part of the blockchain that is the new new thing because the reality is not much of this is actually in production yet. So right. so there's there's a intellectual experiment. That I think is fairly logically consistent, not completely, but it, that hasn't extended to the point where you know what blockchain applications have you guys used as part of your business today? Zero. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, and so and so that that how does that look? That may be the new new thing. By the way, right. and if that and if, and if we're and if we're using what we I think we all think there'll be myriad you know blockchain applications that are the are one of our one if not our only primary interface to the internet or the internet at large you know how do are those businesses are they not you know how do they look is it going to be funds is it going to be tokens are we all are we at the dinosaur mm-hmm. here right. we meaning venture yeah. funds yeah that could be that that is one new new that is one new new thing i think there are other i think i think that Here's another new, new thing. Maybe it's only a new thing, but technology has been deflationary in every industry except for two and Mm -hmm. massively deflationary in every industry for education and healthcare. Mm -hmm. In other words, technology uses extensively in those and the cost, the average cost to consumer has gone up over time. It makes no sense. Yeah. Just not logical. So if anyone can figure that out or that changes, that feels like a new, new thing. And the reason I mention it's a new, new thing is I think it won't look like anything we've seen. Yep. So we will only spot it, you know, as part of the journey. We can't, you, three of us couldn't get together and figure out what that, we might have a couple ideas. That, how has technology not affected those two industries to drive costs dramatically down to the end user? Right. So the, one of the things about the new, new thing that's interesting, right, is can something, can something, you know, can something become an, a new? Th- so it has to be a thing before you're the new new thing, right? And the reason I mention that is there are a lot of investors investing in quantum computing. There are tons of investors yeah. investing in blockchain. Not that much is in production, right? The cycles are so tight, and information flow is so liquid that the dynamic by which thing by which inventions happen is very different. Mm. In other words, someone you know. The idea of someone in a garage and launching something that's fully transformational and then becomes the new thing doesn't happen as much because people are already exploring it, investing in it. Although Bitcoin is a counterexample of that. Well, but here's the thing. There's billions of dollars going into Bitcoin, you know. 
I just mean large, it was created by someone in, in it a, was, but in a, but not but that my point is none of these. You know, we're not using Bitcoin oh, credit yes, cards. Right. We're not right. The app, the production. Going back to that production question, there's not a lot of applications in production that are being used at scale. Yet you have billions of dollars and lots of activity behind it. I'm not saying the question I think about that is how does that change the dynamic of the new new thing? Yeah, I I wonder. I wonder also if I, we really have to stop using this. <laughs> but it's but good. That's I wonder if it's it. impossible to actually discover or know the new new or the new 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 thing right because if you yes. if you go back eight or nine years right right coin didn't even exist yes right and so exactly. there's no possible way in 2006 or 2007 yep. Yep. we could have had this conversation Absolutely. and said that blockchain is so an the area book, that's so going to be really is interesting to me because it's about the journey because you're right but it's the journey to stumble upon that right what right. does that take right because yeah, I mean, I think that that comes back to why I feel skeptical of of overly thematic investing yeah. of someone who says, okay, we did a bunch of research. We think these three things are going to be huge over the next five years, and so yeah. so we're gonna you know we're just gonna invest in those Absolutely. areas. Some of that is important, right? But but more often, like you following smart founders will it seems much more likely to lead you yeah. to something that is doesn't even exist on your radar, totally. right? But totally but, agree. but that's yeah. where the process there's a comes thing. In. There's this Albert Albert sent around at one point there was a, a a paper, I think it was a H a Harvard Business School paper, it was called Automation or Obliteration, and it talked about new new transformational innovative businesses in two buckets. They're ones that take an existing industry and automate them. And that's mm -hmm. really valuable. Mm -hmm. Right. And there's one that obliterated. Those are harder to see. It's easier. You can spot we can just we can look at an industry and say, oh, if it just worked this much better, right? Yeah. But then it's you it's hard in in advance to spot the ones that obliterate or yeah. recreate. You would have never thought of Twitter's impact on the newspaper industry when we were using it in 2007. Right, but yet it had right. a massive impact, mm -hmm. dramatic impact on them. You talked a little bit about may maybe adding to the partnership at some point. What, how do you and and Albert think about evolving the firm over time? And maybe what are some of the crazier experiments that you guys might run in the next in the years to come? Well, or I guess I guess the question is, you know. The assumption might be like it's worked really well right. over the last ten years. So the, right. there's there's a certain assumption that says let's just you and I let's just continue right. to do that. Right. What would that look like? And 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 maybe what would what what are some of the things that you say? Well, maybe we should change in 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 these ways. So I think when I think when when you, when you have a business and it's doing okay, then the temptation is to say why change it, right? But it feels like a little bit intellectually dishonest in the industry we're in to say that because that's not how you would. If your companies came to you right. and said that, you would never guide them that way. You'd say, if you keep doing what you're doing, someone's going to find a different, a better, faster, cheaper way to do it. So I think about that like we can't, right. we can't keep doing the same thing. Okay, that's easy. The okay. harder question is, what does it mean? So I don't know what the crazy ideas are. I think I think we feel pretty clear that um, that for the most part, um, we're a bit of a monoculture. Right, we're around the same age. We have generally the same backgrounds right. and experiences, and we don't we don't have the benefit of different people who th who may think differently. Now we've changed that a lot, but we don't feel we're that's a process. And we okay. and, I, and to be competitive, one hundred percent, we have to fix that. We believe to be competitive. Yep. So we know what we know, but we don't know what we don't know. Right? There's the great 
John Kenneth Galbraith quote. Yep. Two types of people: those who don't know, and those who don't know that they don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so yep. we don't. So that the so. But what are the other crazy things? So again, how does this blockchain stuff relate to it? Right? Are we whether we have four or five or six investment professionals? Are we the best people to find companies or companies to find us? Is this like closed process? The best way to have you know continual flow of interesting opportunities right. to invest in, or is there something more more distributed? Mm-hmm. Right? If you you know, this feels like there's really great advancements in science that as software people we don't participate in because we can't evaluate those. What if you should have someone to evaluate? Mm-hmm. Do you do a science fund? I have certain I have certain beliefs about the way content is being produced and distributed that feel to me like they're dramatically different than they were in the past. And so in other words, people who are developing content have taken 10 or 20 years of lessons of the internet and do, and are coming up with new methodologies on a small scale and a big scale. Mm-hmm. Are we set up to invest in that? Mm-hmm. If one believes that right. is investment, you know, is it is a reality for you, for notation capital and U square ventures that the vast, vast majority of the people will never get to invest in what we do. Right. I don't feel, feels kind of weird. Mm-hmm. By the way, I believe part of that is why you're seeing from, from an happening. LP perspective. Yeah. Right. People like, can't, just, you can't get super in. Super small LP. You can't get right? in. Yeah. Right. Right. But look what's happening in the blockchain world. And you see there's enormous activated energy yeah. for people to participate in the investing yeah. process. And part of that's because they can't get into our crap. Right. So right. Is there, are there different structures? Mm-hmm. Is that a public vehicle? Is it some more open vehicle? So I don't, these are all like whiteboard ideas yeah. that were nowhere. Yeah. We're like a year into man- being going yeah. back to the beginning, being managing partners. Give us a freaking break. What have but you we're talking done over the last <laughs> year? <laughs> My God. Andy, thank you so much, uh, so much. for um, actually inviting us to your office. So you hosted in a way. Um, really appreciate it. Thanks, man. This podcast was created by Nick Charles and Alex Lines, partners at Notation Capital. Notation is a pre-seed venture capital firm. We invest in amazing technical teams in New York at the infancy of an idea. You can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital. Thanks to eShares for sponsoring this episode. We use the product at Notation and recommend it to all the companies we work with. eShares also has a product specifically for LPs. eShares for LPs allows you to easily sign, send, and store K1s, securely manage capital calls, review your investment KPIs, and more. If you want to learn more about eShares for LPs, go to bit.ly.com slash product. We'd also like to thank Silicon Valley Bank. At SVB, the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors, its experts help innovators, enterprises, and investors move their bold ideas forward. Tap into the experience and connections of the Silicon Valley Bank team for advice on strategic, operational, and tactical issues and limited partner insights. Silicon Valley Bank is a member of the FDIC. If you liked this episode, please share and remember to tag it with hashtag OpenLP. We'd also like to thank Ben Glawe, who is our amazing audio engineer. You should work with him. You can find Ben on Twitter at visible underscore sound.